0: You're listening to Marketing News Canada, Canada's number one show featuring
1: the brightest minds in marketing, PR, and digital advertising. Welcome everybody to another episode of Marketing News Canada. I'm your host Ted Lau, and today I have our guest Paul Cohen from Freshbooks. Very excited to have you. Thank you for being here, Paul. Paul Cohen is the CMO at FreshBooks. He's had a 20 plus year career in marketing, holding leadership roles in big companies. He has also launched scrappy startups, including his own. He's marketed phones, food, booze, toys, and SaaS products. Well, welcome, Paul. Hey, thanks. Good to be here, Ted. Absolutely. So maybe let's uh, start start with your origin story because uh, I want to know you know how does someone like yourself go all the way up to the top C suite at FreshBooks?
0: Sure. You know I came from very humble beginnings in the marketing world. It's funny because when I was young, I you know was always drawn to to marketing or not really knowing it, but the things of marketing. You know whether it was early on and I I was just doing like a lot of drawing and drawing logos and and those types of things. But, you know, it's funny that you kind of stopped on the booze thing because it's like one of my early things I did uh, when I was like in and around grade 10. So I was about 15, 16. I got really great fake ID and I started running this kind of bootlegging business where I employed a bunch of people we bought booze for all the kids in high school, and it was kind of supplementing my income. But and it, it really made me understand the laws of supply and demand, and fulfilling pain points and needs. And so, you're a young
1: Al Capone, Is that yeah, what
0: you're... It, it very, very much so, or just a, a real good capitalist. But it was one of those things where I did that. Or I really kind of realized, just like when you fulfill a certain need, it works really well. But, you know, I, in university, I spent a lot of time throwing parties of like 3,000 people, stuff like that, and negotiating with beer companies and getting insurance policies and all of that kind of stuff. So so I got into early in my career marketing, got into event marketing first and, and then kind of realized, hey, I'd rather go up the food chain and got into advertising and then kind of realized that I should really focus on moving over client side and really just focus like, you know, on technology and just because it was something I loved. I grew up, you know, as my... Dad worked for IBM. I went to computer camp as a kid learning to code DOS. And so I always just had a had a thing for technology and have really kind of focused my career on in and around the space.
1: How'd you get to FreshBooks?
0: Yeah. So, you know, FreshBooks, we're really going through a transition and accelerated growth kind of phase in in our life cycle right now. So I've been in the role for just over a year and a half now. And when I was chatting with the folks about coming in, we really wanted to put the accelerator down on growth. There's a, a lot of really interesting things happening in the category, whether it's like some markets regulating, invoicing or your taxes or whatever it might be, as well as just like through what we've experienced through this pandemic, a lot of businesses having to digitize more. There's just so many companies right now that just haven't got their operations online. We primarily focus on service-based businesses. So, you know, the e-commerce space is seeing a a real kind of drive right now. But but similarly, like all the the service-based businesses, which is a a much larger kind of uh, section of the category are also experiencing a bit of a boom, like trades and contractors and certain other professions as well. So, you know, really, I joined to help kind of what would build the playbook for how we were going to drive that growth, both, you know, within North America and then internationally too. We've historically been a pretty heavy, like, self-serve attrition funnel engine. We're building out our B2B or direct sales capabilities, as well as other channels like reseller. And we're investing more in building out our accountant channel and stuff. But, you know, really what our primary difference is between us and folks like QuickBooks or Zero who are... Really really kind of the accounting platforms is that we're focused on the owner. So we want to be that accounting platform that thinks of the owner first, that helps them with their finances and manage everything. And really it's about how can we capitalize and drive accelerated growth.
1: Great. So we have in our form, usually when we ask folks, hey, what do you want to talk about? And one of the topics in which you talked about was getting fired as a <laughs> career move. Yeah. And I just, I was like, okay, well, there's a lot of other stuff but I want to hear about this. So how do you get fired as a career move?
0: Yeah, um, it's, uh, I think people are often really scared of being fired. I've been fired a couple times in my career. And at each point, it's always kind of led to something new and has led me to learn something either about myself, about an industry or, or, or something completely different. So, you know, first, I worked for Excite at Home in the early 2000s. So if you either Google it or remember it, it uh, back in the late 90s, early 2000s, first there was the big dot-com bus. So, you know, Pets.com, Ask Jeeves, there's a you know, whole bunch of companies that just don't exist anymore for a variety of reasons. Excited Home was one of them. We were an internet service provider as well as a portal. So very much like Yahoo or whatever, you know? So unfortunately, we were one of those companies that didn't make it through. You know, and then I spent some time Me and a couple guys from Excite started a company where we were taking remnant ad impressions from other portals because we knew there was a ton of them at the time, and then we resold them. So it's kind of like if you think about it, I was about ten years too early for programmatic, <laughs> and but seeing like these opportunities. So, so it was one of those things where it gave me a, a super interesting view of the world, the ability to start a company when the world was going through change, and, and similarly, like I, I worked at a, at Rogers, running a bunch of the consumer marketing activity for the company, and had a good six year run. There and then eventually got let go with me and my boss not seeing eye to eye in terms of how we should be, you know, working together, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And uh, and it was great because then I got you know a lot of time to go snowboarding and spend some good time out west in Revelstoke and Kelowna and, and hitting a bunch of hills of the interior BC. But then I also then moved into another startup where we were kind of eight people doing anything for money in the social media space, and this is 2008 when every brand wanted to get into have a Facebook page and this and that and have some apps and all these kinds of things. So then, you know, we started off as doing services and then then built a SaaS platform and doing page management and posting management and then getting into the ad solutions business and and doing measurement and analytics. So, you know, I think, you know, most people... You really kind of fear this, but I love it because it's like it gives you that kind of kick in the butt to go and figure out that next big thing that you wanted to do or the big bet that you wanted to take as well. So I I think it's like incredibly liberating when uh, when that activity happens.
1: One of my favorite books is The Obstacle is the Way by Ryan Holiday. And that's basically the crux of the book where you basically took an obstacle and you turned it into an opportunity and you did it a couple of times. How have you seen that happen for companies that you've actually worked in where you were doing the marketing and some obstacle happened and you you turned it into an opportunity? Yeah,
0: I mean, I think this happens every company all the time. Whenever companies go through a change, it's often people look at, you know, the the crisis. It's the crisis-tunity. I think Homer Simpson said that. But it's every crisis does pose this opportunity for change and to adapt and to do something new. You know, I was at Shutterstock for a few years and the company went through a bunch of change, a CMO left, and it was it had a fairly floundering enterprise and SMB sales motion. And so I just called up the CEO and went and met with John Oranger and and just went in his office and said, hey, this is how enterprise and SMB marketing should work. And And he was like, yeah, that seems to make sense. Who should run it? You know, I kind of shuffled my feet a little bit, and I'm like, "Well, oh, I'm I'm here presenting this to you, so so I think it's an opportunity." And and so I think in in all of these cases, like you know, I think people get kind of complacent in their roles and the way that businesses work, and and I think we should always just be going back to like, how would you approach these problems if you were like a you know a, a fairly green 20 year old coming into the workforce like i remember the way i got into advertising in 1996 when the the market wasn't too hot was i just got all of the the addresses for all of the big agencies in the city and i just went and with my resume and walked into their offices and went to their reception and said Hi, I'd like to meet with the president, please. And they're like, "Huh?" <laughs> and <laughs> I'm like, "Do you have an appointment?" No, but I sh- you should hire me because I'm great. And da da da. And I, you know, I went into probably about twenty or or thirty and got to know where they all were. But and I actually got hired. So it's it's one of those things where it's like at a certain point you just need to kind of take risks and do things that may be a little bit naive, but people generally will be accepting of ideas.
1: Yeah, I mean, ignorance is bliss and all that. Did you? Bring booze to the receptionist. Maybe <laughs> had you done that, it would have been a bit more receptive.
0: Yeah, it's. Uh, I probably should have, but uh, I did learn that a little. A little bit of grease does go a long way in terms of helping <laughs> open doors, for sure.
1: Just from the short time that we've chatted here, basically from what I can tell, uh, someone that looks at opportunity takes risks. In terms of the, I guess, twenty somewhat years you've been in the industry, there's been so much change. How do you continually find new opportunities and not stay stagnant?
0: yeah well it's one it's really hard it's It's really, really hard. I think the way the industry has changed it's been creating people who are very verticalized within the marketing industry. And people were kind of losing the T-shaped marketer. So, you know, well, first, I really encourage my team for being able to kind of cross-pollinate, learn other areas. It's hard, though, because you get someone who's really good at performance marketing, you don't want them to move. And we deal with this where we get, you know, today a manager on the performance side who's a rock star and is doing great, wants to move over into a different role. And we're like, well, do we help drive someone's career path or try to still pigeonhole them? But, you know, overall, I think what you need to do is make sure you're learning the different disciplines. My approach, and you know, it doesn't work for everyone, but I've been very hands-on. I think because I've gone from large companies working with like big multi-big agencies, you know, working in consulting for global clients and all of this kind of stuff. One of the things that I've I've always still tried to do is keep my hands on some of the tools. You know, know how to build a report in Salesforce. How do you launch a campaign within Facebook? And just keep kind of close to the tools so I can at least have a bit of a, a working knowledge as to how things actually work. And I also think that also helps you kind of sniff at the BS in the ecosystem as well, because there is certainly is a lot of it. So I think as the industry changes, it's just one of those things that you need to, to keep on top of it. I think the hardest part is learning. And finding the time to do it. So my approach is like, instead of like, I don't read a lot of like books written by CMOs or, or other folks, I read a lot of articles about like, you know, how to campaign management or CDPs or data aggregation or whatever it might be like I go deep into a topic, I try to learn as much as I can about that topic to a reasonable degree of of what I can and can learn. But I really kind of focus on that piece as opposed to kind of like learning more just general organizational trends and that kind of stuff.
1: That's great. Now you, you know, being the chief marketing officer, you're, you're at the top of the food chain in the marketing space. And a lot of our listeners, I think there's going to be a real range of the type of listeners we have, some that are starting out, some are mid-career, and some are fairly seasoned and, and mature in, in their their career now. I'm interested in the whole journey where you're now managing people and probably managing people that manage people. Yep. And so how do you do that? Because you just talked about the tools, touching the tools and trying to stay abreast on that. And at the same time, that's the difficulty, right? At least I found like running my own show, that transition from being the technician, the practitioner, to the guy that's overseeing it to now having, I oversee people that oversee people. Yep. What's the trick there for you? What lesson can you impart to our listeners?
0: Sure. So I think, you know, at various roles or at various levels within where you are, I think you have to be really, really mindful of like what your role is. So there's things I love, like I love writing copy. I love giving feedback on creative. I like to pretend to design creative as well. But I know that my time isn't best served doing that stuff. Like I have to hire people that are really, really good at that stuff and empower them to do those things. So in my role, I know that I need to focus on the things that I should be focused on. So I really kind of look at it as three things in terms of what I should be doing as a CMO. One is being like absolutely obsessed about the customer. Just looking at what those journeys are, understanding their needs, their pain points, simplifying things, because, you know, in most organizations, like the biggest challenge is they get so mired and people get so mired in the operations, the day to day, what's actually going on that we really lose sight of of the functional things that we're doing with the customer. So, So what I do is try to champion programs. Today we just ran a customer connect summit where the focus was on our uh, frontline workers and their experience with customers. So we run these different types of things. You know, we have a program at FreshBooks where everybody who comes into the company does four weeks training uh, in terms of, of learning the product and then handling customer tickets. But we're trying to like my job is to make sure we systematize different ways to keep us connected to customers. So that's like you know for job number one. The second is building teams. So like, you know, my job is is really about making sure that I get the right organization in place based on the goal of the company. Different companies are at different phases and they need to be constructed and organized in the way that that is best for where they are. So as we're trying to go into a growth mode, I need to make sure we're architected in the best way to drive growth. So, you know, what I can do is help kind of focus on what that looks like and then help give priorities to the team in terms of what they're supposed to be focused on. And more importantly, probably the things that they shouldn't be doing. So it's like, you know, everybody will keep doing the list of 10 things until someone tells them to stop doing five of them. So that's, that's really something I need to do. And and the next is kind of truthful growth. So I think, you know, that what, what we don't do a lot of is just make sure that all the goals that we're setting, they actually make sense. So... You know, I work really closely with our CFO and our FP&A team, and, and we have like a, a marketing ops team or marketing operations, not like ops in, in the term of like our systems and tools. We have both, but operations in terms of our financial planning and the marketing planning. So we have a negotiation with finance in terms of what we believe our growth is going to be. So this truthful growth needs to be happened so that we're not just issuing things from a top down standpoint, but we're working to do top down, bottom up, sideways in to make sure that everything is realistic in terms of what we believe. Believe can actually happen, so it's really kind of how we combine the art and the science of this all together to make sure that we're managing realistic expectations. So those are the kind of the three things I know I need to focus on, so that then my team can focus on the things that are, are really important
1: to them. Got it. So obsessed about the customer, building teams, yep. and truthful growth. Now, with the obsessing about the customer, yeah, we're still, I guess, at the tail end, hopefully, of a global pandemic. Yeah. You said that your uh, you've been on the job eighteen months or so, so meaning you were still in the very early stage of the honeymoon phase of the role, and then <laughs> oh hey, by the way, we're shutting down. Yeah. How do you obsess about the customer? How do you keep this team that you're you know just introduced to? Yeah. And also that truthful growth because truthfully you. I would imagine, at least for me, I was like, I don't know if we're growing this year, guys. Right. <laughs> so, so how did, what was your playbook or did you have a playbook?
0: Sure. So coming in, you know, I wish I was still in the honeymoon period at that point, I was knee deep into like basic, like it kind of, kind of went on an accelerated cycle because we wanted to hit the ground running. You know, we, we were dumping more money into our marketing engine than the company had ever done before. So I had to get up to speed pretty quickly. So, you know, I spent a lot of time just really looking at our numbers and, Focusing on the org structure, and you know I think when we talk about crisis and opportunity, we took the pandemic as that, like so when things started closing down when we we were pausing stuff, I, I took that as like a moment of pause to be able to say hey are we is, are we structured the right way what else, what do I really need to change right now and and made those changes. So, you know, we, we had a period of pause. I got the right structure in place, took about a month to do it. And, and it was interesting because like, you know, historical data is wonderful because like we can just look at what's going on. We built out a whole bunch of different models in terms of what we thought was going to happen. There was companies that I, I heard of doing 10 different models for how the pandemic was going to play out. We had three and we were pretty bang on with what our expectations were. And it wasn't as deep. Uh, downturn as we anticipated it to be. And a a lot of companies bounced back. So our customers were super resilient and they really kind of came back. You know, at FreshBooks, we really focus on instead of trying to do things from the top down with our customers, like make funds and do stuff that where we're going to like come and like, you know, you deserve money to help grow your business. We like to do stuff from the ground up. So one of the programs that we launched, like within the first week of businesses shutting down was a program called Roll Up Your Sleeves. And this was where it was really kind of centered within marketing. And we basically got a whole bunch of volunteers to give their time to our customers So if a customer needed help with SEO, if they were just wanted to bounce ideas about how to pivot their business, (laughs) one person needed some drywall hung and they needed help painting. So one of our lead devs went and did that so they could open their daycare. I worked with some four or five different customers. One guy down in Atlanta who was a graphic designer, he primarily serviced the live entertainment and theater industry. And he was just like, I don't know what to do. I have no idea. And so I just worked with him on a couple calls to just say, like, here's ways that you could think about coming at the different types of clients. Like he had theater businesses he helped kind of bring online and into YouTube. I'm like, package that up as a service, bring that to other people, like expand your scope outside of Atlanta. And, And that's what he did. So it's, I think like, having the physical connection and actually talking to customers is like one of the most important things. And we used that time through the pandemic just to make sure we had that grassroots connection and and we were supporting people through that whole time. And now we just tried to keep continuing with it and with a bunch of other initiatives that just like connect us with customers constantly. So one thing I love to do is just like have calls and hear what's going on and hear their gripes and complaints, the things they love about the product, the things they hate about the product. And just so that we could understand like their workflows and what they do every day
1: how did you come up with that idea i mean that that roll up your sleeves is brilliant was that from brainstorming you were i don't know were you in the shower like you know singing a song and then this thing popped up or what happened
0: so, you know, the company has a pretty solid DNA about like having a pretty tight connection with our customers and doing things that are are very like tangible, very one-to-one. Like, a, you know, before if people went on a business trip, like say they went to Vegas for a conference, we would try to find people in the area and host five, 10 customers for dinner. And didn't matter who they were. Like they could be a support person. They could be like someone in marketing. They could be someone in sales. They all could It's just host them, talk to them. Like you're not selling them you're not trying to do a loyalty program like it's just talk to them hear what they say and also it's like it's kind of funny cuz you get like a group of 10 entrepreneurs or business owners together they often just start networking and talking amongst themselves and, and sell each other their own services and stuff so yeah it's wild so it's we we just do these things so that that idea actually came it was a program that we were actually looking to pilot out of our comms team Lindsay Lapchuk, she ran the team it was something that she was we were going to launch anyway but when the pandemic came, we're like, we should just accelerate this thing and get it going tomorrow. And the beauty of it, she just kind of said, all right, it's done. I've sent notes out. We've got emails lined up. I'm starting to book appointments with, uh, with customers. So like, are you in? And just spun up a Slack channel for like posting the problems that different customers were having. And then people would just pick it up and run from there. So it's just like, get great ideas and just let them happen.
1: That's fantastic. Good for you. With regards to another note that you wrote here. It said slacktivism and the myth of the purpose-driven consumer. I have no idea what you're trying to say here. So (laughs) I think our listeners might not either. Can you touch on that?
0: Yeah, it's kind of interesting. Like, you know, a lot of times, you know, when we talk about branding and the purpose that we're trying to create as a brand or the things that we're trying to do as a brand, a lot of organizations are starting to build up, like, what is our purpose? Like, how do we create a purpose driven brand? So, you know, you you look at certain brands like Patagonia, who would be in that category of a purpose driven brand. And so I think there's this like really interesting notion of like what we believe the consumer insight to be. And then what they really do. So, you know, Patagonia is lucky because, or I wouldn't say lucky, they're successful so they can be a purpose driven brand. They were not a purpose driven brand when they started, they were a brand that sold really great quality product. And then as they've evolved, they have kind of moved their way into that. There are some successful brands that have started out as being, you know, purpose-driven, Tom's, and there's some in this space. But, you know, when you look at real consumer needs and building a company, I think like what we should look at first is like, what are we doing to solve customer problems and pain points. Look at brands like Uber. You know, Uber has done a lot of very, very bad things in terms of how it treats its drivers. Yet when Delete Uber was a thing a few years ago, mm. and then it wasn't because they rocketed back into the top of App Store rankings because after everyone deleted it, and then a week later, they're like, it's really inconvenient because they've got the biggest fleet and I just want to get a car. The recency and frequency of the downloads all of a sudden like, like yeah. exploded. So it's like, oh, they're ranking back at number one again. So I think it's all about like, you know, it's about utility and the, the things that you're solving in customers' lives. And people are way more fickle or way less fickle than we actually think they are and way more forgetful. So, you know, they're willing to forget the things that Uber did. You know, United did what? Like they broke guitars, killed dogs, like did a whole bunch of bad stuff too. Yet, you know, outside of the pandemic, their business performance was, was fine through all that as well. So I think there's, you know, we're in a different climate now. And as we've gone through this past year with you know more of a focus on Black Lives Matter and the treatment of Indigenous folks and, and just gender equity and everything that we're doing, there's things that we need to do and we need to behave differently. But overall, as brands, I think those are, are just like things we have to do now. So now it's about how do we make sure like our brand is doing the right things. But the core of it, solve your first problem first. For us, it's about building great software and experiences for our customers
1: it is almost like table stakes at this point right black lives matter truth and so, yeah, reconciliation
0: totally absolutely and i think it's i mean the 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 more challenging things that people have to deal with now are like what is the role of the company in this climate so you know you look at things like what basecamp did and where they said hey we want to stop conversations around this and you know you look at the intent and the intent was like hey let's focus on the business but you know, at the end of it, people are people and they have different facets to their personality and they want to have these conversations. So organizations have a a bit of a duty to make sure that they can facilitate these conversations. And, you know, it may not be that from a cause marketing strategy, we're going to support everything, but we're going to have a focus, but we're not going to stop conversations. And what we'll do is help facilitate other things that our employee and our FreshBooker base want to actually do and talk about.
2: At Parker, our purpose is simple.
1: Well, let's talk about disrupting the market, yeah, future of AI and ads and and our market like when both you and I started our careers, I mean social media didn't even exist. it wasn't a career now there's people you know they make an entire career out of being an influencer, right so AI is this whole new aspect that I think people are just scratching the surface of any any insights
0: yeah, I mean, I think it's 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 been an interesting place because like ten years ago there was a really big promise of what AI was and wasn't going to do. And, you know, there's lots of examples of machine learning and what it's doing out in the world. I think in the ad business, it's really been focused on optimization, and it's only really solved that problem today a bit. You know, I'd love a world where, you know, I could go and, punch in a brief into a machine and, and it goes and works through the corpus of ads and is able to build me a, an ad with the perfect image or the perfect variance of images, the right headline and body copy yeah. um, for all the different the types of customers. Yeah. yeah. And I mean, we have the corpus of data. What we don't have is people training it. We don't have the response data. We don't, it's really hard to codify creativity. So I think that that would be a, a massive frontier. It's something that I was working with a data science team when I was at the social media software company, and we were trying to figure out if we could predict creativity. Most ads are very structured. Like, you know, most ads are just you know, basically upside down knock-knock jokes or or just like putting a, a mirror back to society. So, you know, I, I think there's a real opportunity there. When I was at Shutterstock, we were leaning heavily into this area because, you know, we sat on such a massive database of imagery, plus it was all tagged. And we had so much stuff, we were missing the other side, which was the words that go with everything as well. So, you know, I, I think there'd be a, a real awesome business there. Everybody's solving a piece of it, but nobody's trying to solve the whole thing right now.
1: What's the biggest difference that you've noticed when you're marketing for a SaaS company versus the other things that you do? You again, booze, toys, food. Yeah. uh, And here you have shutterstock, fresh books.
0: Yeah. I think there's like, you know, I think different different marketers market differently. I've really been focused in this kind of SaaS space. And so everything's generally Fairly attributable, whether it's B two B marketing, whether it's um, self service kind of stuff that we're doing a lot of today, you know, we have all the attribution we would ever need. You know, I think it's much more challenging these days for the CPGs and the other folks who are pretty devoid of data. Like they're fixing that, but really kind of miss the boat on bringing their customer data together. We have a, a huge luxury of it. I think the biggest opportunity that I have as a marketer is that I'm currently sitting on a massive amount of data of expense and income data that all of our customers are putting through our tool. And it tells me more about what they're doing in the state of their business than anything I could possibly model out with Google and Facebook or anybody else could tell me. So, you know, I think as, as a marketer, what I get excited about is the opportunity that kind of sits there. So one, I'm, you know, I'm taking our customer data and I'm we've used it for different purposes. Like, you know, we've developed, relationships with various governments in the states and in Canada for giving them information, like obviously anonymized and and aggregated, but what's the state of SMBs in their areas? And so we're trying to help like inform policies on what should happen. But all that data is incredibly useful for businesses too. So, you know, if I'm a graphic designer in North Dakota and I want to set my billable rate, what are all the other graphic designers in North Dakota setting as their billable rate? So we have we have an opportunity to take this data, turn it back to our customers to help equalize the playing field, to help them understand what they should be doing in their business, how they should be setting up their business operations and, and use all this data both to improve our product, but also use it as a, as a great hook to bring people into into our business too, so yeah, that that gets me soup. I think it's like most companies are not like staring at the well and the gold that's like right underneath their feet, and so I'm yeah. I'm trying to trying to do that right now too.
1: I mean that data is is fantastic, and I wonder if there's a two questions. One is there a business opportunity for you guys to take that data and almost become a, an advisory of some sort to government or other other businesses, and then the other question is we had a another guest on the show a little while ago and he said that facebook has data that can tell when someone's going to get divorced two (laughs) years before that divorce happens and i wonder if you have data at this point where you could actually help the customer where like hey the way that you're going your business you got to turn this thing around and here's some data points
0: Yeah, exactly. So this is the type of stuff that we that we want to get at, and you know, right now we're just kind of looking at more of the rearview mirror. And the next step is like, okay, how can we start predicting things? But these are all the leapfrog moves that we want to make from a platform standpoint. You know, we look at like it's kind of funny because we're uh, we're managing finances in our platform. It's generally the one thing that every owner does not want to do. Nobody is like. Nobody gets out of bed, claps their hands, and is like, I can't wait to do my invoicing and
1: expensing today. It was the first thing that I delegated out when I started <laughs> it, my business 19 totally, years ago.
0: Totally. It's in, whenever I've started my company, I'm like, I'll hire an accountant. And it's like, and and, and we'll just deal with it that way. So, you know, I think what, People appreciate about us in our platform, and what they love about us is that, you know, the UI and the experience is actually quite good. But, but it's actually kind of interesting because it's like engagement, maybe not be the best metric for us, because most of those, those folks are trying to come in and do a workflow that gets them out of doing that workflow as fast as they possibly can. So, you know, we're, we're really trying to look at like, what are these things that we can do to help kind of make everything way more effortless than it needs to be? And if you think about like, you know, hey, if it's a graphic designer with 10 clients, it's, you know, they may not be like super interested in forecasting out like what their cash flow is going to be like and things like that. But they want to know some things about like pricing and making sure that they're on par and they're not being like exploited at all or something like that, you know, versus maybe a contractor who's like, you know, going through a pandemic and has to figure out what his cash flow is going to be because his job site shut down. He's got 15 portalettes and some scaffolding rented. He's like, oh, I really need to predict out what's going to happen here and run some different scenarios. So we need to make sure our platform kind of works in in all those different scenarios for the different types of of owners that are using it.
1: Your platform, it sounds like it. You've mentioned graphic designers a couple times and and construction folks. Are are those kind of the two spaces that you want to play in the sandboxes or are there other sandboxes you want to... Tons
0: of others. So when we talk about the service category, you know, it's basically anybody. Is really not selling a good or service. Like it, it basically is retail and restaurants is where we don't do. And even in the restaurant space, we can do catering and stuff like that. So it's really kind of like the service economy and knowledge workers and folks like that. So it can be anything from, yeah, like graphic designers, trades, construction. It's also like dog walkers, people who are running beach volleyball leagues. It's like it's so diverse. It's such a massively diverse set of people. And they all behave somewhat differently. Some have inventory, some don't. Some have light inventory. Some have like fleets of people that they want to track. And so there's so many ways to use the platform for those different use cases. That's where it gets pretty, pretty interesting, but also very challenging to then one, find all these different types of people, but then two, build something that's like universal enough for all these different use cases.
1: Is there a tip that you have like a pro tip where you know you've you've done the startup, you've done medium-sized companies, you've done larger enterprise businesses. For the guys that are smaller, that are always thinking, oh, well, I don't have all the buckets of money like, uh, like Paul here over at FreshBooks. <laughs> Yet, you know, it sounds like a lot of the things that you've done doesn't really cost all that much. Is there a tip there or a little nugget that you could share with our listeners about something they can do?
0: Yeah. So it's no, it's no matter what organization you work in, no matter how big or how small, you never have enough money. <laughs> that's that's one thing that's universal. Well, it's always like, the case. Maybe, maybe except for Rogers, where I was trying to give money back. I, like that oh, was wow. the only time yeah, where wow. I was like, I'm like, hey, I've got a big budget and I don't need to have all of it. I'd rather get more efficient with this spend. But, you know, I think when you get onto the small side. So, you know, a couple of years ago, I started a, a food startup called Feast where we did food delivery in under 10 minutes. So we were full stack where we had a commercial kitchen, prepared the food. We made food that we could specifically hold through like a two to three hour lunch window. And then we got food into people's hands in under 10 minutes. So just a combination of food and tech when a lot of cash was going into that space. We were trying to do everything on a dime. I think the main thing is like, is when you understand the customer and you can really understand what their motivations are and then start to train them on what is the action that you want them to take. You have to find the marketing tactics that are going to be like the best ones that are going to create some sort of virality first and create that word of mouth. I don't want to say like, I hate the word virality, but it's like, it's really just about what is going to get the biggest advocates talking about you the most. And it's something that I learned really from like folks who've invested in marketplaces like Uber or Airbnb, and it's like, invest heavily in your first customers get them to be your snowball to help drive more activity. When I was trying to grow Feast, the food company, we would go and we booked meetings all through the city in Toronto, going into different offices, taking people free food, having them download the app, enter a coupon code, hand them their food, make them do the first order.
1: You literally walked in there and... And made them do this. Like, well, I, not made them, but I mean, yeah, you walk I, them through the entire experience.
0: You want free lunch, which everybody wants. If we could go in there and we knew like, again, we were an attrition game. We were just trying to get to the second order. So it's like, what do we need to do to get the first order? We need to start showing them what the habit would be. And then we need to build the habit. So, you know, this was a very, very guerrilla warfare style of doing it. But, you know, it worked. And that's what we we drove like a huge amount of initial orders and activity and stuff like that. You know, our biggest problem was we couldn't get the volume up Hmm. to the scale that we needed it to. And so that was the biggest challenge that we had in terms of hitting the model that we needed. But but it's like those were the tactics that worked for us. And we're applying that still at, at FreshBooks today where it's like, you know, we still need to scale. And if the model that we have in the US is not going to work over in the UK, then we need to adjust and adapt and make sure that we can find those things that are still moving. And I think that we still have probably some work to do on that kind of, on that virality and, and referral component. That's like probably the biggest piece that we need to still sort out to to drive like some pretty crazy growth.
1: Well actually I would imagine that being going to different geographical territories is challenging because even in the states there are 50 states and there are yeah. different regions and rural urban and now you're going to the UK is it data that you would rely on is it research how do you how do you know that okay this thing that works in Atlanta and North Dakota is going to work in London.
0: Yeah. The the great part is Most of the world is pretty universal in terms of driving a self-serve SaaS funnel, which is great. Like if you have universal pain points and they work, then they work. The biggest challenge that we have in accounting is accounting rules are very different market to market. Our first area that we need to make sure of is like, do we have enough product to satisfy the core pain points that people are going to have? Or are they going to get into the product and be like, like it's not making it easier for me to file my taxes or to submit my sales tax or whatever it might be. So we have to make sure first that we're at that bare minimum in terms of what the market is really looking for. And then it's it's really just understanding the market. So we, you know, we do a a lot of research on the SEM side or keyword side, see what people are actually looking for, searching for. How much does it align to our business? What are other companies doing in terms of their go-to-markets and and making sure that, like, it can our go-to-market motions work the same? And can we acquire customers in those areas at the same amount? I mean, the great thing that exists is like quarterly reports from our competitors. Like, how much are they spending? How much are they doing it for? Is their CAC higher or lower and not in their, their, their primary markets? What do their LTVs look like? So, you know, we, we can then kind of assume all right, like our LTVs might be half and our CACs are going to be twice as much for a while because that's what our competitors are running at. So, you know, this is where it just kind of comes into making sure your assumptions and and everything are fed by some sort of facts and, and just being crafty with where you find those things.
1: What about uh, contrarian views? Sometimes I find where a campaign goes really well is when you're going against the grain. Is there anything that you've done in the past where you're like... It, this sounds bananas, but it also makes sense. And you executed and it was like, whoa, that had a really good return.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's yeah, interesting. I am wrong a lot. <laughs> I think that, that one of the things that's uh, really interesting about marketing is is making sure that you don't expect that you're going to be right all the time you know i think nothing has really come to mind where i've been where where there's been something that's really really surprised me and i think it's because like what surprised me is when i've launched campaigns or launch programs and they're so dead simple i'm like there's no way that this is going to work cuz it's so basic i remember when i was at rogers and so we were launching this was probably this was in 2007 2006 maybe and we were relaunching the category of internet sticks, the sticks that you stick into the side oh, yeah, of your I remember uh, yeah, yeah. yeah. And so they'd been around for a while. And when 3G, like when the the blazing 3G, fast 3G, yes. 3G came around, we were like, all right, let's relaunch this category. And so, and it was quite funny because we had nobody in product management that wanted to touch the product at all. So, so I'm like, I'll take it, I'll launch this thing. This this will be fun. So took them, like did some research, what did what were like the things that baffled people? and and what were the big barriers they are like, most people were like, oh, that's not going to work there. That's not going to work there. Like, it's, it's going to be crap. Like, it's it just won't work. And we're like, well, okay, that's an interesting uh, piece. So, so we launched a campaign that just basically said, it will work in all these places.
1: <laughs> that was it. You was literally really- had your opposition. You mean the opposition which you got was from potential customers saying, this stick won't work, yeah, this technology just, won't work here and more. here and here
0: won't work. So we we were like, well, first we branded them. So we called them rocket sticks and we made them red. So it was funny because like the conversations, I don't know if you, I may date myself, but there was a, probably a a cartoon in syndication called Rocket Robin Hood. And we kept like laughing or like, ah, there's no way we should call them this. Then we called them that. (laughs) And we just, so we're like called the manufacturers and said, make sure they're all red, like rocket sticks, red, it's going to work. And, uh, and to this day, they're still called that. Like, I think they're they're still called rocket hubs and rocket stuff. So it's like, you know, good, 10 plus years later, uh, 15 years later now, they're, they're still calling him that at Rogers. But it's it was one of those things where it's like, where I look at it, I'm like, oh man, like we're going to have to talk about like the blazing speeds and all these yeah, yeah. things that it can actually do. But all we needed to do was talk about, hey, it works in these places, like on a bus, on a boat, on a plane. It was almost like a Dr. Seuss type of campaign. It was hilarious because then, we launched a campaign, it goes into market, the run rate of the product was like maybe 1200 units a month, it went to 27,000 a month, and then it went to 81,000 a month after that, I was then actually subsequently fired from the company. And then it kept kept going up after there. So it was like, the last thing I worked on was this campaign that just like blew this category out of the water. And all because like, I, you know, and I didn't believe at all that it was going to be the as, as simple a message as it was. But I just think, At the end of it all, people are pretty simple. You give them a really compelling value prop, they're going to latch
1: on to it. Actually, now that you say this, I don't know if it was, you know, me and my buddies drinking the Kool-Aid of your marketing. But I remember doing, this is, again, decade well, not decades ago, but around that time that you relaunched it. I had a friend who was helping me doing a, a live video stream. Yeah. And that place that we were at, for whatever reason, the venue had terrible internet. And he's like, Oh, I got this rocket stick, I'll stick it in. Right. And I was like, <laughs> What that I actually I remember saying, like, that's gonna work. He's like, Yeah, yeah, it'll work. It, like he literally kind of said, kind of what like, we had the same interaction yeah. that yeah. you did. And well, I guess your marketing worked, man.
0: Totally. It was just disbelief. Well, and it's also good that the product worked. I mean, you know, knock yeah. on wood, yeah, depending yeah. where you were, but it uh, it was uh, it was pretty interesting.
1: Reimagining the fresh books brand. You, yeah. you put that as a topic that you want to chat about what what are you thinking
0: yeah so we launched a a new brand last september so you know when i when i came into the company one of the things that i was said i don't want to do is do all the cliche things a cmo would do Rebrand, reorg. And what did I do? I rebranded and I reorged. So it was kind of interesting, though. So the journey of Fresh Books rebrand was quite interesting. When I got in there, the company had already been on this journey for about two years. The company had been running brand fairs, it had been talking to its employee base about the things that we could do for owners, the pain points of owners, have been working on ideating like what are all the new, new ways we could we could service owners. And so I got in there, well the first things I was I participated in was this was this brand fair. And it was like, you know, the entire company presenting ideas around what we could do. There was no parameters at all. It was just given the brief everybody had been working on on the challenges that owners had and, and so we and they took it from there so you know and with it there's like new branding work, new logo design, colors, templates, all the kind of stuff to bring more of a human feel to the brand and all this kind of stuff. So I got in there and I'm like, wow, two years. Like, and the brand is really well understood internally. I'm like, so I have no change management to do internally. And all we need to do is push it over the goal line. And so, so that was the thing. And, and it was quite funny because at the, at the end of the year, like I was kind of, I was kind of like, oh, I'm not sure if we should really be doing it quite yet. When we can do it, there's things wrong with the logo, but it wasn't that bad. And then our COO, he kind of said at the last meeting, last exec meeting of the year, was kind of like, well, another year we don't change the logo and then walked out. <laughs> so I caught up with him. I'm like, what does that mean? He's like, we've been talking about changing this logo for about five years now. Oh, wow. so, so I was like, oh, okay. I'm like, so I got the history of what had been going on and stuff. And it's just like, oh, so I, we just like, we just had a hard time pulling the trigger on, on the decision. So I went, I'm like, we're making this change. And so we set our timeline. We we're actually going to do it earlier, but like in May, but then all of the the pandemic activity happened. We pushed that to September. So it was one of those things and it wasn't anything, it was kind of interesting because it wasn't anything majorly new. It was just a bit like a re, reaffirmation to our customer. We actually wrote this like very long blog post on the rationale and we published it for our customers in case they wanted to go through a rebrand. So we wrote it as like, hey, if you're ever interested in doing a rebrand, these are the steps that we went through and why we went through them and kind of said, you know, showed the, the logo and the challenges that we had with the logo and and why we changed it and, and some of the oddities that existed with it. And and why we went to the new one, and why we chose the colors that we chose, and and then how it came together, and how we did the brand fair, and operationalized it, and all of this kind of stuff. Because all of that stuff, like you know, what's in a logo, what's in colors, and that kind of mm-hmm. stuff. A lot is there, but at the end of it, it's really just like you know, a company, you know, a company or an owner is not going to choose us versus QuickBooks because of the color of our logo or the style of our logo. But it needs to represent something to to uh, to the market and to our employees as well.
1: Okay, let's get into some rapid fire. You ready? All right, cool. Okay, so best thing you did over COVID?
0: Uh, Spend a lot of time with my family.
1: Yeah, I started with uh, my kid teaching her martial arts in the garage and now now she can break boards and do weapon stuff. So it's it's kind (laughs) of nice.
0: I spent an extensive amount of time at skate parks and a oh, little nice. bit of a little bit of time in hospitals.
1: Yeah, I would imagine. Did you hop on the skateboards?
0: <laughs> uh I did. And then I realized that it had been 20 years since I'd been on a skateboard. So then I hopped off. Not yeah, by, no, not I have my choice.
1: I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I have a buddy who hopped onto a skateboard with his kid and he'd been skating for for however long and then he hadn't done it for some time. But at our age, when you fall. Things break. Oh, and yeah. he was in a sling for weeks. Yeah. Uh, Favorite sugary snack?
0: Um, I am not a sugar guy, but uh, it would be a, a delicious, delicious cinnamon bun.
1: Last Halloween costume.
0: Um, <laughs> at FreshBooks, we take Halloween very seriously, called Freshoween. I had five different costumes for our Freshoween day, which was one great. one day? in one day cuz because of covid because everything was over zoom, I have a tickle trunk in my house, and I was able to do costume changes throughout the day to the point where people were calling me out saying that I was trying to play the system and, and because I was was adjusting my my costume so many times so it went from Star Trek character to a Richard Simmons s type of thing with full complete dancing or a sweat to the oldies uh, video background <laughs> on nice. zoom wow. as well and uh, oh, I can't remember the other ones i, 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 I had three other so but it you was, have uh, a it,
1: tickle trunk so just I, for the listeners who don't know a tickle <laughs> trunk is from what was his name again mr, mr. dress up mr, dress up. mr. Yeah. dress up from the cbc back in the what 60s yeah. 70s and 80s and he yeah. was a kids tv host and he had this trunk and he had puppets too but he had this trunk where he would just call the tickle trunk he'd open it and then just magically dressed up in something that's why his name was mr dress up yeah and so you you have this or this is something that like your kids like how how...
0: i i have i've always been a big halloween person many many costumes lots of i would host lots of parties around around halloween and and it's it has extended into our kids which is great because now i have i have a lot of ill-fitting superhero outfits that i could also put on from time (laughs) to time too
1: (laughs) well next halloween part of your house oh yeah absolutely favorite vacation you took
0: um it would it would be the last one so it was uh went to costa rica and uh and i can't remember a vacation before that anymore but wow. it was uh it was awesome it was awesome surfing mountains like such it's a magical country
1: what's the first thing you marketed was it booze
0: um well i'd say myself a lawn cutting business so flyers door-to-door going and uh and drumming up business that way
1: Funnest thing you've marketed?
0: Funnest. Um, Funnest,
1: quirkiest, you know?
0: Yeah. When I worked at a toy company, I worked at a company called Spin Master for a little bit. I would say one of the most interesting things was uh, Paw Patrol. And you marketed
1: uh, Paw Patrol?
0: So, the, the it, marketed is an interesting term. So, we had two shows that we were launching at the same time. One was called 10 Kind Nights, the other was Paw Patrol. The, uh, Paw Patrol. It was anticipated that Tenkai Knights was going to be the big winner. It was, I believe, it was on Cartoon Network. Paw Patrol is on Nickelodeon. Hmm. And when I saw Paw Patrol, I'm like, this thing is going to be killer. Going to be killer.
1: Expert.
0: Yeah. Aired like with it, it went to like Jake and the Neverland Pirate status within the first week in terms of ratings, and it just skyrocketed from there to the point where like there was no toy runs, like no no actual toy planned uh, for the fall. Oh. That, and it was going to be a slow burn, and and be like, okay, we'll we'll launch all the stuff, see how it tracks in in the spring. And it was like, oh dear lord, we've got to get get a lot of product running now. And so it was also like, so the it was a huge success for the company, and it turned into a pretty big licensing piece for the company as well.
1: Your kids must have thought you were a hero. Like, oh my goodness, yeah.
0: They loved coming to my office. They thought it was it was pretty epic, and I had a a big cage full of toys as well that uh, I would use usually for PR and purposes like that. And but uh, yeah, it was good to have. I was I was I was the most favorite uh, parent for a little while. I would
1: imagine on the yeah. entire block, all his friends and everything.
0: And I love toys, so I'm like, hey, this was this was a lot of fun too.
1: All right, favorite toy that you had as a kid?
0: Oh. Um, I, Star Wars action figures. Love them. Like Lego's way up there too, but it, uh, I still have a lot of that stuff. Love sci-fi in like the 70s and early 80s. Uh, I fondly remember going down to the mall and with $4 in my hand and, and buying a, a action figure that would be $3.95 and, and just like loving coming home and playing with
1: that thing. Man, I loved Lego. I loved Lego so much that you know, even though you know my daughter, they they started at her age now in this generation, they have Lego that is you know more gender neutral, and they had a bunch of Disney Lego yeah. stuff. So, so I'm building Lego with my kid. My wife has well, my daughter's older now, but my wife banned Lego in the house because we would build it and it'd be like, no, 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 we don't want to take it down. And so, just Lego <laughs> Lego pieces all over the house. She she yeah. does not
0: like Lego. I uh yeah I've got there is a ton of it still here and I I was when like my, my kids were were young too young far too young to even be getting the, the sets that we were getting I'm like all right we need to get the millennium falcon <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: we're going to do this we're going to do this and then you're just sitting there <laughs> yeah it's a,
0: me, me finishing it off they're like they're like we've lost interest I'm like come on let's get it done
1: <laughs> all right favorite star wars episode
0: oh um I mean I'm a purist on the original trilogy being three, four, and five. Return of the Jedi was probably probably my favorite one. Although I have loved watching The Mandalorian, and mm. I don't know why, but it, it has actually turned my Facebook feed into being only articles having to do with with Star Wars plots and uh, and basically SAS products. So I've, I believe I've actually hit peak Facebook optimization when that's all I ever see in my newsfeed. There's, they're my only two interests. Fantastic. <laughs>
1: All right. Best piece of career slash marketing advice you could give some of our listeners: pick
0: uh, pick a wave and something that you love. Like a wave, meaning like what's the trend that you see in the market from a, a, a marketing standpoint? Whether it's like the emergence of of new creator videos the decline of of influencers the chain the deprecation of third party cookies pick a wave that you feel is going to be like a bit of a lasting one and then then an area that you you really want to focus on so you know if if it's uh if it's an area within marketing or whatever like just make sure you're kind of in a thread that you really like that's uh, that's how i've kind of tried to architect uh what i've done
1: any book or marketing book otherwise business book that change your life that you'd recommend
0: um it's it's interesting cuz i haven't i you know i've read a bunch of marketing books i not, like i you know they're all interesting i would say the ones that have actually stuck most branson's first autobiography i read and just like his his approach to his approach to to life and and why he made the decisions that he made, and and just how he he kind of constructed the brand all around extraordinary experiences. There's also a really good interview with uh, a podcast. The only Joe Rogan one that I ever listened to, but it was with him and Elon Musk, and it's like two hours long. But it's a, it is a must listen to to get in the head of how a person like Elon Musk actually thinks in terms of of making bets, building ideas, and 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 it's it's fascinating, absolutely fascinating. And and then, and one if for anybody who wants to read a good kind of post pandemic book, I'd, I'd highly recommend uh, World War Z. It's nothing like the movie. Um, The zombie,
1: yeah, it is
0: nothing like the movie, the Brad Pitt movie. It's a, it's a chronicle like of of different people's accounts of going through a, a zombie apocalypse, but it was basically a virus. It was like, how did the world respond to a virus? And uh, I read it like during the pandemic and I'm just like, and, and it's just kind of interesting, like Israel killed it. Like they were just able to, yeah, to just like contain things just like they did in, in, uh, with the uh, coronavirus and stuff. And so there's just some interesting parallels if it, and it doesn't weird you out at the end of it because it's, it, it's just like a really great, interesting read that parallels life right now.
1: Wow. I would not have thought that World War Z would be something that we'd be talking about today. Yeah.
0: It's great though. It's a, it's just like a nice holding up a mirror to what we've all experienced over the past, uh, past
1: year and a half. Well, awesome. Well, Hey, Paul, thank you for your time and love all the advice that you've given us today. And I'm so excited that you and another friend of mine have a tickle trunk. That's fantastic. (laughs) And uh, all the best to you and FreshBooks team and have a great Halloween coming up. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Ted. Have a good one.
3: Thanks for listening to Marketing News Canada. For more episodes and other great stories from Canadian marketers, visit marketingnewscanada.com. All episodes are recorded in the Jelly Marketing Studio thanks to our producer, Chris Penner and editors, Travis Jeffers and the Podfather.